Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Mika Cross, a transformation workplace strategist and government workplace expert who has designed award-winning, innovative employment and flexible work programs across the U.S. government and private industry. Mika is also a trusted advisor on the future of work and was called to testify as an expert witness for the Government Oversight and Reform Committee, where she has shared her recommendations for the federal workplace post-pandemic. Welcome to the show, Mika. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here and talk with you about a subject that I'm near and dear about. And before we get into it, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got your start. Oh boy, how I got my start. Oh, there's so many different stories, I think. You know, I'll start with really my first entrance into a career versus just a job. So I actually am an Army veteran, and I served in uniform, both enlisted, so I learned to become a good follower before I learned to become a good leader, because I then became a commissioned officer. So I kind of got to see both sides of the coin, right? The line and staff, sort of blue-collar-ish, grunt work, workforce side, and then the leadership, managerial roles as well. And that really, I think, set me off to a great start in terms of perspective, I worked in human resources. I was an adjutant general leading highly deployable units. I often was stationed with the boys. So I worked in the cavalry unit supporting tankers and then rapidly deployable infantry folks. (laughs) But I was in a support role. And then after 9-11, I transitioned to a federal government agency still in uniform, though, active duty, where I worked across organizations in this highly matrixed form helping to design and develop policies and strategies that reached all branches of military services, civilian workforce, contractors, you name it, and really had to coordinate and think about culture change and how policies would affect the workforce and culture at large versus just one component, branch, you know, microculture. And then sort of trips my way across government where I wanted to learn everything and touch everything on the cusp of workforce, people, strategy, policy. And so I worked in diversity, equal employment, opportunity, and inclusion. I worked in work life and wellness. I worked in human capital policy, leadership, management, performance management, and um, was able to really do some really great things. I worked at the Department of Agriculture and stood up award-winning telework programs more than 10 years ago. So it wasn't new for government to be doing things a little differently. Um, worked at the Office of Personnel Management, Department of Labor, before jumping over to private industry where I served as vice president of employer engagement for a fully remote company, FlexJobs, working with employers mm. of all sizes, types, and industries. And just was really able to, you know, 
capitalize on that passion that I have around people, culture, process, and performance and what it can mean now, but also for the future. You know, it's interesting to hear about, you know, that end and this kind of passion around people, process, culture, thinking about that journey you're on from, you know, being enlisted and, you know, it's quite a lot about logistics and making sure that communication is always smooth and that people understand what needs to be done and everything's flowing in a great way and then doing policy. And I mean, it seems like the, just the evolution of the career kind of set you up to do the work you're doing now. Yeah. You know, funny story about communication. That was actually my major. (laughs) My Mm. bachelor's degree is in mass communication. I often thought I wanted to go into public relations and marketing um, because I just had an affinity for the pen. I thought I might want to do some journalism, whatever that might look like. And I really enjoyed like, how can you message things to connect and relate with people? Well, the army had different plans for me. So, (laughs) you know, you can say that you want to do something and sometimes they put you where they need you. And so I had to learn logistics, budget, you know, personnel and all of those things. But at my core, I was an adjutant general, which is like your HR director for a unit or organization. I think the combination of the skill that I had as a communicator and the interest that I had on the people side really was a winning blend because it served me well throughout every other position. And some jobs I even had were communications directors within a human capital or human resources component. So if you can imagine the magic that happens when you're being able to translate and communicate with a workforce around the policies in a way that they can understand how to apply them and use them, it really is a great blend. So yeah. So that's really fascinating, you know, this idea, you know, the Army had different plans. But I'm also curious, as you were kind of in those moments, how did your appreciation for communication and the written word and and helping people understand each other and relate, how did that show up even in those moments where, you know, you weren't directly put into a role of, you know, communication, so to speak? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, I have a story from early in my career that might be helpful to paint the picture of that. But, you know, I mentioned that I was supporting highly deployable units. And these are folks that have to be ready to go at any given time within 24 hours or less notice. So something happens, we move into action. And if you can imagine a workforce of 16,000 plus soldiers that you're supporting to be deployable, ready to go, prepared what does that mean for the families who are supporting our Mm. frontline service members? So at the same time that my unit and my organization that I led had to lead and prepare and be ready for this highly deployable workforce, I also led a family support group and a spouse support group at the same time. That was one of my many other duties as assigned. And when I was part of that role. At the moment, I wasn't a parent. I was newly married. So I didn't have much experience, you know, as as a regular, you know, family or mother or what have you, as I did later in my career. But I listened. Mm -hmm. And I could also hear the distress and concerns from the family members who have to love and support those service members when they get called to action and also are left to take on different duties and roles and transition their service members when they come back. That information and the ability to connect with people on a real, relatable, transparent level helped inform then how I would create 
newsletters and conversations and um, activities and events that would help bring people together by using their input and their real world experience to help form policies, activities, programs, initiatives that would then support them. Sort of like user-centered design, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Human-centered design, in fact. I took that experience with me pretty much in every other role. So it would help inform how I would write a policy. It would also help me understand how would it affect people who are doing that hard work. It also helped me connect with leaders and managers from that managerial perspective and what they would need. And so the workforce communications that I was responsible for, I started evolving and also customizing for the different audiences. I also found that there is power in the pen when you're talking about being able to have ownership of how policies are written. So when I went to the intelligence community and I was updating all of these antiquated policies in a top secret environment that you know had to be implemented in different ways, I raised my hand to volunteer for that project because I wanted to learn the policies, but I also took the opportunity to just change little wordsmith, you know, changes in how the policies were written. If you can imagine a highly bureaucratic government agency. So it would say, you know, employees must not request X, Y, Z. I switched the language to say, employees may request (laughs) X, Y, Z. I would make it more plain language and more in a positive, active voice than passive. And in a way where it almost empowered both the workers and the supervisors to be able to make those really important decisions rather than get buried in that bureaucratic language that is really hard to decipher. And I started seeing the impacts of that in addition to the marketing, the outreach, newsletters, conversations, town halls, you name it. So I really got jazzed about that and took those experiences with me in every role that I've ever had. I love that, this idea of like shaping the language so it draws people in. Yeah, because sometimes they are complex. I mean, some of the the HR policies, even in private industry, they're they're written in tax law and, you know, the compliance and, um, you know, requirements that managers have to uphold. Think about your performance management policies. Oh, my goodness. But if we write them in a more relatable way, still conveying the parameters and guardrails that people have to follow and stay within, you are almost empowering them to take control over what they are in control over. So what, even if it's a small team or those decisions, those micro decisions in the organization, and you can really start affecting culture change even on a small scale by starting there with the policies. You know, it even makes me think how humor can be so powerful Yet oftentimes these documents, since they have legal ramifications and they're, they're regulations at some level, but I think that there's an opportunity for people to maybe embrace a little bit more creativity, a little bit more fun in some points because you know some things are have less risk than other things. True. Very true. And I think people at the end of the day want to feel like they have a voice and that their leadership cares. Mm. It doesn't have to mean that you're responsive and taking action on every last suggestion, idea, or recommendation that you get. But it does take skill and effort and some investment in opening the doors to building that culture where people feel safe to voice their preferences, suggestions, ideas, concerns, and feedback 
and you as leaders of an organization to be responsive to that. You could say, hey, we've heard your feedback. Based on your feedback, because of your feedback, we've done X, Y, or Z, or we've considered your feedback and we did take it to this level of the organization. Unfortunately, at this time, we cannot do this, but we thank you for your feedback. Sometimes you have to message it many, many, many times mm. and continuously remind people that you are taking, did you notice how many times I said feedback? Your feedback <laughs> or whatever. It could be a suggestion box. It could be a pulse survey. It could be, you know, you name it. Sometimes you have to say it, say it again, say it in a different way, put it in written form, do a video, do an in-person event, do, you know, and you're messaging it again and again. It strengthens and it also helps to uphold that trust, that culture, the glue that can really help your workforce operate as a cohesive unit. You know, the repetition is so critical. And the thing that it reminds me as well is giving people visibility in the process. Because, you know, if people are just dropping stuff in a suggestion box and then things happen, and, you know, maybe even if we take the effort to say that things happened and thanks for the feedback, it's not the same as people hearing that, oh, look, we got this idea like X number of times, or there's a pattern of the feedback that falls into these categories. And even giving people feedback on the feedback, right? Like, hey, this yeah. is all really great. And here's why this category of stuff is a little problematic for us right now, because we're trying to be mindful of how it impacts people with neurodiversity or whatever. And so that way it helps people understand the thinking, because if they just see the outputs and the inputs, it's like harder to know what's happening inside. You're so right. And I, and I think also like, and in addition to those things, you know, sometimes as leaders, we tend to shy away from the things that we don't have answers for. Mm. And it's really tricky to be vulnerable and honest and transparent. But, you know, I'm, I'm advising some very senior leadership right now in the federal government and they're preparing for a town hall. And for years, they their staff is still working remotely, not just because of the pandemic, but also because there's a redesign of the office that's happening and things of that nature. And there's a lot of uncertainty around when people are going to be expected to come back, if they're going to be expected to come back, and what the policy will look like, but also a date for when the renovations are done. There are literally no answers right now. It's been almost three years. And it's the number one topic, number one and two topics that our, the workforce wants to know about. So I'm recommending that they start off their next town hall by saying, we know everyone's still interested in knowing, so am I. Unfortunately, you know, XYZ still doesn't have a date or a deadline, but we know this is near and dear to your heart. And as soon as we have an answer, we'll be preparing to communicate with you and give you those answers that you're looking for. And we're sorry that we don't have the answers, not on us, but at the same time, we will keep you informed and we know it's important to you. Even just those words are powerful and it mm -hmm. makes people feel seen and heard, even in an environment where they're working fully remotely. Yeah. Even just affirming uh, and reinforcing what we're hearing allows people to know that, oh, wow. Okay. It's been noted. Yeah, exactly. And you know, again, people people feel and sense the genuine care and responsiveness. Not it's not fake. It's not coming through. You know, as artificial. It's coming through as, hey, we know this is something that is important to you. 
it's important to us as humans as well. And I wish I had an answer for you, but we don't. So even just acknowledging that, and that can look a little scary because, you know, at some mm-hmm. levels of the organization, you might feel like, oh, goodness, am I going to be liable if I say something wrong? So maybe I won't say anything at all. I mean, think about the tumultuous things that have been going on over the last three years in our country and and areas of the country and, and issues that are happening all over. Um, but not saying something sometimes can convey messages that you don't want to convey to your workforce. And that is you are tone deaf or you're looking a blind eye or you are not interested in how people are feeling about XYZ current event. You know, the other thing that's bringing to mind too is like sometimes that can come from a sense of, of, of just fear. Like if I bring this up, what's going to happen? And maybe even acknowledging that can be valuable at times. Like, you know, I know this is on everyone's mind. I'm not even sure how to, how to address it at this point, but I want you to know that I realize it's on everyone's mind and we'll discuss it as there seems to be time to discuss it. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty human. I mean, talk about being transparent. It's just being honest about, hey, this is a little difficult to discuss right now and I don't want it to just be an elephant in the room. Exactly. And, and if you don't, you know, it, it really leaves people feeling like, they don't have a place and where they can voice it. And some might say, oh, well, maybe work isn't the place for it. But where do we spend the majority of our time in our waking hours and our lives? It's working. And I, it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical location. But if we can't lean in and show up for one another, show care and compassion and build those cultures where people feel like they can bring their whole selves to work, they won't. And they'll go somewhere else where they can. Yeah. I personally have a hypothesis that the reason that people feel so much overwhelm and burnout is because of this stress associated with not being able to bring themselves. Because imagine, you know, like Superman, you know, has to go into, I'm sort of Superwoman has to as well, but never really saw her get into a telephone booth. So I'm not sure she maybe had a place where she transitioned from, you know, being the normal citizen to being the superhero. And, you know, we're having to go through those same transitions at work, right? When we're transitioning from a personal identity to work identity, it's exhausting. And the more we can let go of that and just be ourselves and wherever we are, I think that will decrease burnout and stress. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you take that a step further and consider if people can't feel like they can show up and ask the hard questions. If they see something that might not look right or feel right, they don't feel comfortable voicing it. Think about the effect to the products, innovation, Mm -hmm. your customer service delivery. I mean, if people are keeping quiet, that is the last thing I would want in an organization, especially if you are forward-facing, customer-serving, and mission-focused. People are so concerned with this innovation piece, this collaboration piece. How are we going to get more products out the door? How are we going to serve more people? How are we going to be, you know, CX, UX design premier to make sure we meet people where they're at and our customers are satisfied? But if your workforce can't even speak up or feel comfortable or or don't feel like there's that psychological safety where they can voice concerns or they see a red flag, they're able to, to, to speak about it it will affect your bottom line. Absolutely. And, you know, I like to think of it from the perspective that if we're not talking about it today, it's not going to make it disappear. It's going to mean that it's just going to come out later and it'll become more expensive to fix later because more things will become dependent on those decisions and 
and more things will have happened and more people will be impacted. It's just a lot more to unravel. It's sort of like, you know, if, if your car starts making a noise and you wait like a year to fix it, it's probably going to yeah. be more expensive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in this job market, <laughs> people who have jobs right now are leaving their current positions at the rate globally of about 25%. So imagine a quarter of your workforce could be looking for another job right now. So if you think that these things don't matter, you're absolutely wrong. You know, it's more than just remote work or hybrid work or flexibility in location or flexible work schedules. It's also company culture. And that really matters. I mean, culture is having a watershed moment at the at, at this current time in the work environment that we're navigating. People had the opportunity to reset their priorities and really reimagine what they want for their lives, how they want to spend their time, what their priorities are. People are leaving in droves. They're quiet quitting. We're talking about the great resignation. It does matter. They are searching for a more meaningful experience for themselves, for their career, and more of a match for things that matter, both at work, but also in their home lives as well. You know, that echoes with something you were telling me in the pre-show chat, which was this need for kind of purpose and the reasons for gathering. And I think that echoes up to the need for purpose as an organization. Like, why are we here and, and how can we make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to our communication conversation, the more we can equip leaders and managers of our workforce with the right talking points and messaging, but also tactics and how we reward, how we recognize, how we offer performance feedback and tie it back to the reason, the big why, right? Simon Sinek, what is your why? Why are we investing all of our waking hours during the day or the majority of them to this purpose? What does it matter? You know, they often say in the federal government, NASA uh, lands at the top, top, top of the list of the best workplaces in the federal government nearly every year, right? And um, so there's the story that just says, you know, you could walk into the halls of NASA and any one of their facility locations and ask the janitor, you know, what is your purpose? What is your mission? What are, why are you here? And he or she might turn to you and say, I'm here to put people on the moon. <laughs> And explore space. So the more we can translate your everyday task-oriented activities, work performance, team-based, you know, collaboration and work, and how that ties into what matters most to us in our organization and our values. Um, and again, remember that message, repeat, repeat, repeat in different ways. The more people feel connected and that sense of purpose, people want to do a good job. The majority of folks want to feel like they're making a difference in their work. Look at the frontline healthcare workers in this country. And they were able to sacrifice their own needs, their, their families' needs during the pandemic and show up for those who needed them. Now they're faced with the rate of burnout higher than any other industry or occupation. And it's really going to spill over into how we are able to care for <laughs> those in our country you, you wait. I mean, the Surgeon General put out a warning about healthcare mm. worker burnout as a crisis, a national crisis, and estimates there's going to be a shortage of, you know, millions of lower wage healthcare workers within the next five years. It's going to impact us all. 
Yeah, in addition to the communications piece, I think you were also telling me about your interest and recent work in using data to understand needs, preferences, and sounds like there's some interesting work happening there. Yeah, I'm really excited because I've been working with a team that put together sort of a grassroots level now, Culture Council. So it's like a workforce affinity group, employee resource group, you could say, but it's really focused on count and culture rather. And so they call it the Culture Council and it's it's really evolving into in taking legs in terms of growing legs rather in terms of impact and people taking on areas and challenges and opportunities around culture, engagement, workforce experience, and all of those beautiful things, but they're taking an active role. So now this this council is serving as an advisor, an advise, advisory committee sort of internally for senior leaders to hear what people want, how they want, and also listen to some recommendations. That in turn allows the leadership team to prioritize resources and determine, do they need training? Are we going to invest in X, Y, Z? You know, and it's really this beautiful blend. Well, one of the things they put together was a, um, a little, a little survey and people can feel sometimes, you know, survey fatigue after too much of it, but the workforce created a survey for itself, collected nearly 50% of the workforce insights on this small survey and came back with recommendations, especially as it relates to back to office and return to office strategies for being together again. And so they were able to provide these insights based on data that the workforce gave on different levels in the organization who prefer different things. And some of the organization might be comprised more so of like introverts or these are data scientists or what have you. And it does differ even within the larger organization and culture. It has been fascinating. So what they found was that for the most part, the majority of folks who participated in the survey, they want to come together over social events like food or an activity or fun or social connections rather than information, knowledge sharing, regular traditional kinds of work. They actually feel like this group feels like they can accomplish more deep work and sort of mission related work individually and independently, and then come together for more social engagements, and then when needed, that collaboration and interactivity. So it'll be really interesting how leaders are going to be using those data insights to inform their return to office strategy or not, and the impacts uh, as they go forward, because the intent is to stay connected and, and continue to hear from people's perspectives how things are landing. You know, that tracks with, you know, how I've been thinking and, and also what I've been noticing around Austin with regards to real estate, because we have an event coming up in December and I was looking for a venue partner and talking to a few different companies around town and, and touring their spaces. And it's really fascinating to watch people move from this completely structured office space that's got, you know, dedicated desks for people and to some more kind of open and, and new concepts that are kind of designed to meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's variety. I mean, we have five generations of workers in the workforce right now. Think about your Xennials <laughs> and Gen Z and beyond. I mean, my teenage son, if I text him more than two lines in a message, he will tell me, why are you texting me paragraphs? <laughs> and so, you know, these are 
people are joining our workforce in droves and the ones that we want early careerists, you know, college educated or not trades educated, experience educated also, right? You're earned by your learn apprentices that come into the workforce as well. But these kids have also been through a tremendous transformation in the way that they've experienced life and learning in the education system. And they're knocking on our doors, uh, if not already, to come into the workforce. So their expectations are going to look a lot different. They have competency and skill with relating, connecting, and collaborating and learning in a virtual environment, as well as in a hybrid environment too. So, you know, the more we can give choices and structure work design, work time, work policy, and flexibility um, to meet people where they're at while still holding them accountable, of course, and delivering mission and customer efficacy, the better off we will be. Yeah, I think variety and 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 inclusive design in general, you know, how can we design things so that we're considering all the various needs? And, you know, it's often the case where people will say, well, do we really want to make make something unique or spend extra money to accommodate, you know, a half a percent of our staff? But there's so much evidence out there that when we design for those people, everyone benefits, right? Yeah. If people don't feel comfortable in their workspace, wherever that might be, how can they bring their best to work? Uh, I read this interesting article um in the UK is considering rolling out benefits that are around menopausal and um, mm. menopausal aged women and what that might look like. And, you know, it's not a laughing matter and every woman experiences it at some point in their life and it can manifest in different ways, whether that's physical affliction, mental fog, you know, um, joint pain, fatigue, you name it. Um, even how your body regulates temperature. And so what if someone is freezing and thinking about, you know, how they can stay warm in the workspace instead of focusing on the work itself or something as easy as the ability to sit to stand in a workspace versus your traditional sitting seated desks? There, there's just so much to consider. I mean, that's just one example, but the other thing to think about and consider is the level and percentages of elementary school age children who have diagnosed neurodiverse challenges mm. and consider even the percentages of those that are not diagnosed yet. And what does that mean when we're thinking about workspace design and mandating that people come together in a certain way? Well, if there are fans or open space, you want to design this open space collaborative, you know, work design. What if that doesn't work for the person that needs quiet or less distraction or not be comfortable with that interpersonal interaction as much when they're performing their the duties that they can do either independently or in a more quiet, <laughs> less distracting kind of office space. So, there's just so much considerations. Um, and sometimes we, we forget we have our blinders on because we translate information and consider it from our perspective. It's the whole reason why people are chopping at the bit to get back to the office, but not everyone is. And what does that mean for your workforce who might have some concerns or anxiety around what that looks like after spending XYZ months or years working comfortably? <laughs> 
from their home office. You know, I've seen some research that came out about people's experiences in in the pandemic and uh, working remotely. And, And it was really fascinating to see that underrepresented folks, BIPOC in specific, were feeling like they were more able to effectively collaborate and contribute because of the, in the virtual space, the perception of the micro biases or microaggressive kind of things that are happening are less prevalent in the virtual space. Because when you're in a room with someone, you're feeling all those things or noticing all those little facial ticks or whatever they are. And um, in virtual, that stuff's kind of diminished which is super fascinating because we as facilitators always talk about the signals are harder to pick up on, you know, to tell where we need to lean in or lean out. And it hadn't really dawned on me that like some people benefit from that. Oh, a hundred percent. I'm really glad you brought up that, that data and what the findings are. In fact, I I read a recent SHRM article and also some research done by the future forum out of Slack. And those uh, findings substantiated exactly what you're saying that traditionally underrepresented folks and women that are BIPOC and also, you know, LGBTQIA and um, other demographics, parents, caregivers, you name it, it kind of leveled the playing field when Mm. shifting to this remote virtual workspace where people didn't have to feel like they were being judged or that they were having to experience bias or those microaggressions based on their race, their ethnicity, their religious observations, their the fact they have to leave to go pick up their kid or what have you, or other issues. And so that research is very powerful to consider when you're looking at your new future of work strategy and how you might consider meeting people where they're at and offering choice and preference and different ways of being flexible, not even just location, but you know, also work schedule, flexibility, shift work, and and things of that nature. Really so important. And um, I want to just take a moment to maybe chat about the future and what might the world look like if we do more of the things you're talking about, you know, as we start to work and think about workplace in in these ways and more people adopt these kinds of thinkings and practices, what does the world look like? Well, I think it's a world of opportunity, if I may say so. Uh, We are in the midst, really, of this once-in-a-generation transformation to the way that we're working. And if we don't take advantage of that opportunity to do things differently, and also, you know, I mentioned, like, test and assess, right? There's no one-size-fits-all answer because we have so many different nuances and different industries, occupations. Some jobs simply cannot be performed off-site and remotely, but are there components of the job that can be done so? Maybe it's even once a month or a couple times a year. Thinking about emergency preparedness, since we are at the tail end of emergency preparedness month in September, and you know how can we leverage flexible ways of working and our policies and people's strategies around continuity? Think about what's happening in Florida right now and you know the Southern Coast with the hurricane season, um, you know, my heart goes out to all those folks who are experiencing that level of devastation, but there's always going to be unplanned events, unplanned emergencies and unexpected disruptions. How you position yourself now to embrace 
and humanize the workforce, embrace and meet people where they're at, and embrace, test, and assess workforce flexibilities that can continue making things work, supporting your workforce, and keeping them engaged, and then therefore performing the services of your organization are going to be incredibly powerful when you're considering now and then the next piece of the future of work. Amazing. Well, I think the, to me, the, the net is we have the power to create the future and we should be doing it one question at a time, listening to the people that we're around and we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. It starts right now and, and what we do matters and we can we can recalibrate and reshift where needed and pivot where needed. We've proven that, haven't we? So I would say be fearless. <laughs> Invite your workforce to be a part of that change. It doesn't mean you have to act on every piece of it, but it does mean you have to create a culture where people feel heard and respected and where they feel valued enough to be a part of those conversations. And then again, you know, look at the data and test and assess. So that's that, those are my two cents. <laughs> awesome. And I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought as we wrap up here today. A final thought is that, you know, again, I think people were so excited after the pandemic to think about going back, right? Like back to normal, back to the office, back to the way they were before the pandemic. But we have changed. We have changed as people and humans. We have changed as family members, friends, community members, and our workforce and workplaces have also changed. So I really, really recommend thinking about how you can reframe those conversations and taking advantage of the potential that is out there right now. And again, for the future, it's, it's really an exciting time. Well, thank you so much, Mika. I really appreciate you being with us and sharing all this amazing thoughts. And hopefully we talk again sometime soon. I would love that. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.